Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, history, friends, patrons all, to the Korean War, episode 13. Last time we saw how the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship, Alliance, and Mutual Assistance was created, and exactly what Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin had to go through to actually bring it to life. The announcement of this treaty on the 14th of February 1950 sent shockwaves throughout the world, since even though we know that Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The true extent of the friendship between the two communist leaders left an awful lot to be desired. The image which was presented to the public suggested a communist union of unprecedented power and size. In reality, the improved relationship between Beijing and Moscow wouldn't last till the end of the 1950s, but in 1950 itself, the treaty was an abrupt, terrifying challenge to the position of the West. Worse, it confirmed that the foreign policy of Washington up to that point and Dean Acheson's belief that a wedge could be driven between Mao and Stalin had been inherently false. 
Now confronted with the true extent of his policy failures, and with literally the worst foreign policy outcome possible, short of an actual war, Dean Acheson and his president had to scramble to forge some kind of response. With this communist coup, they were now under immense foreign as well as domestic pressure to respond. As we'll see throughout the course of this episode, the shock to Acheson's system compelled him to go from one diplomatic extreme to the other. Far from ignorant of the military threat now building in Asia, the Truman administration would now seek to use it to their advantage and become the arsenal of democracy which was required to hold the spread of communism back. Let's see how such a policy was born then, as I take you to January 1950. The Sign of the Week this week is brought to you by 1956, the eventful year. If you did not know, if you somehow were not aware that we recently released something of a brand new series into the podcasting universe, then this is another official announcement to let you know that, yes, we did release a brand new podcast into the history podcasting universe. 1956 is a special, very special series. It looks at the year 1956, obviously enough, but its very title, The Eventful Year, should indicate that there's an awful lot underneath the hood. What specifically, you may be asking? Well, 1956 is split into two parts. The first part, looking at the Soviet perspectives, what happened with the life after Stalin when Stalin was gone, and what happened with the de-Stalinization speech, which led to a load of revolts and turmoil in the Soviet Union, most particularly in Hungary, for example, which we look at in an awful lot of detail. On the other side of things, in part two, we are looking at the Suez Crisis, the build-up to the Suez Crisis, setting everything in context, putting things in perspective, and looking at the tangled, ridiculous, scheming diplomacy that went on between Britain, France, Israel, the United States, the Soviet Union, the Egyptians... There is just so much going on. In fact, I think eventful is a bit of a mild term considering everything that goes on. If you were to search for 1956 The Eventful Year in iTunes, a brand new podcast would come up. It wouldn't even come up in When Diplomacy Fails. It would come up in a brand new home all by its lonesome. So why not go over there and show it some love? You can click on the link in the description of this podcast to be brought to the iTunes area of wherever this podcast is housed. But whatever podcatcher you use, be it on Android or Apple, please be sure to check 1956 The Eventful Year out. I would really appreciate it. And yes, you may notice by the fact that, of the way it's presented and everything else, it is a Patreon-exclusive series, which means if you want to get access to all the content within it, you will have to become a patron and pay $5 a month. If you do that, you will not only get access to 1956 The Eventful Year, which in itself will be bringing you a great deal of content. I'm currently writing the 32nd episode right now, so that should give you an idea of how much is in it. But in any case, if you do become a patron for $5 a month, you can not only access this, you can also access the stuff that we've done before, such as the Jan Sobieski biography, and you can access The Age of Bismarck, which will be coming next year. It's an investment, in other words. It's an investment in when diplomacy fails, in history, and in your own enjoyment, really, if you would like to access the best of what When Diplomacy Fails has to offer, because this is my part-time job now, I am locking it behind a paywall for all good history friends to come and knock that paywall down with their fiver and see for themselves what the fuss is all about. So I hope you'll come and do that. Go to patreon.com forward slash When Diplomacy Fails 
that again, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, and start chowing down on what 1956 has to offer today. So the song of the week this week is How Could Washington Be a Married Man and Never Tell a Lie? A question I often ask myself. I'm just kidding. It's by MJ O'Connell and it was released in 1917. Enjoy guys and we'll be back with episode 13 of the Korean War. When I was a kid at school learning the golden rule teacher often used to say if you don't tell a lie, there's not a reason why you can't be like Washington someday. No one knows how hard I tried to follow teacher's plan. I did it till the day that I became a married man. But since that day, by golly, folks, I cannot understand. How did Georgie do it? Why doesn't some wise man get up and explain? Why doesn't he clear up my poor mother brain? Why doesn't history tell us the mystery? Why doesn't somebody do it? I'd like to think the tales about him were true. But if he was a married man, I'll leave it to you. Say, how could Washington be a married man and never, never tell a lie? One of the most remarkable things about American foreign policy and the lead up to the Korean War is just how capable its authors were of rapidly altering it to meet with new developments. Such an act may sound obvious, states should always adapt their policy outlook to suit the circumstances, but the abandonment of the wedge strategy and the reactionary build-up of arms, not to mention the new approach to both Korea and Taiwan, were hugely significant changes to how Washington had once viewed the world. In a sense, it represented the abandonment of hope for a better situation and the beginnings of what would become known in historical terms as containment. While the United States had, of course, sought to limit the spread of communism in the past, it was through the Korean War that much of the later foreign policy principles were established, and it was in the few months before the war broke out that a hardline, cynical and for lack of a better term, sneaky foreign policy was developed. And this is by no means a criticism of American policy makers. What it is, is a recognition that, after having been effectively duped by Stalin and Mao, the likes of Dean Acheson determined to get down in the muck, to play dirty, and to best this new Sino-Soviet bloc at its own game. Understanding this new approach helps us to appreciate what the United States was actually doing during the last months of peace. But to most of you guys, it may seem like a bombshell. It might seem even a bit far-fetched. The version of the Korean War which I plan to present in this series is this, that far from twiddling its thumbs and living in blissful ignorance of the threat to Korea and Taiwan, Acheson and some newly installed, more hardline colleagues determined that Korea could have some real value as a piece of bait. This bait could draw first the North Koreans and then the Chinese in, while Taiwan would be secured a new front line against communism would be drawn in Asia, and most importantly of all, Washington would wrest approval in these desperate times for a manifold explosion in its defence budget from $15 billion to $17 billion. This, of course, we've been through before. 
But only through such manifold increases could containment properly be implemented, and the Sino-Soviet alliance properly combated. Yet for such a rise to be acceptable, a genuine international crisis and a threat to a functioning democracy had to occur. In the midst of international outrage and condemnation of the anticipated North Korean invasion of a peaceful country, Washington would then be able to justify a fourfold increase in defensive capabilities that it possessed. Western opinion, the United Nations and American public opinion would think nothing of this development, since it was only a logical governmental response to a hostile world which seemed to gnaw and claw at democracy in the name of communist expansion. It was, of course, not as simple a case that America allowed the Korean War to occur to increase its defence budget. There were far too many variables in place to argue for such a concrete A to B journey in terms of policy. But it was also no coincidence that Washington appealed through the auspices of the United Nations that Douglas MacArthur was allowed to push so far and so determinedly against Chinese sensibilities and that outrage against communist aggression became the order of the day. You know me, guys, and you know I'm not one for conspiracy theories, and we'll detail in a later episode why I believe the idea that the South Koreans attacked first is a complete and utter load. Right now, though, I can at least tell you that the South definitely didn't attack first because this would have gone against the fundamental American policy towards Korea and against the unofficial policy line of the Truman administration. Washington tried to predict and contain the outcome and direction of the Korean War, but hiccups along the way revealed that all things are not certain in the event of war. In this episode, though, I want you guys to try and have an open mind, and I want to explain why I believe the Korean War was far from the shocking surprise to Washington, which it is often portrayed as. If you'll let me then, I'm going to take up our story at the end of January 1950, where a certain message between Stalin and Kim Il-sung may or may not have been read by American codebreakers. The Chinese decision to forge ahead with an alliance with the Soviet Union would have been grounds enough to deeply concern Washington, but the fact that the successful conclusion of the Sino-Soviet alliance came after several efforts to reach out to Mao had been spurned made the revelation all the more bitter. What was more, there are good grounds to suppose that American codebreakers had successfully worked through Soviet, Chinese and North Korean codes and that they were thus able to read the mail that was being sent during these waited months. The basis of this supposition is found in the fact that, on the 31st of January 1950, now remember, a fortnight before the actual Sino-Soviet Treaty was signed, President Truman authorised previously sensitive research into hydrogen bombs, and he conversed with Dean Acheson about a new geopolitical strategy. The day before these two decisions were made, Kim Il-sung received a message from Joseph Stalin which indicated that the Soviet chairman would now support the North Korean plans for an invasion of the South. Whether the fact that Truman's monumental policy decisions coming a day after Stalin's message was a coincidence or not is up for debate, but one memoir in particular describing code-breaking from that area is particularly illuminating. Robert Lamphere, a special agent and communications liaison officer with the FBI and National Security Agency had the following to say about American breakthroughs in code breaking from 1948. 
I can now tell enough of the story so that anyone reading this account will comprehend the magnitude of the breakthrough that the deciphered KGB messages provided. In the best possible scenario, the enemy would never know of our penetration. We would learn in advance of his every move, though, and we would achieve the ultimate counterintelligence goal. Complete control of the enemy's moves against us. Now, I don't argue here that the breaking of Sino-Soviet North Korean codes provided the impetus for the change of policy by the Truman administration, because I believe that the news of the Sino-Soviet alliance would have provided that impetus all by itself. Intelligence gathering remains a sensitive historical issue, and although much of what we know about the Korean War is now declassified, it is still possible to theorise that the United States didn't break the Soviet codes, largely since no governmental official in Washington proclaimed any knowledge of having done so. In short, I believe that the code breaking probably did take place, but the decision to make an abrupt switch in policy did not hinge upon it. However, what makes such code-breaking more likely was the doubling down on intelligence gathering that took place over January 1950, as well as the newly emerging term deemed communications intelligence, which enabled secret service members to possess a greater control over certain elements of foreign policy communications. What this meant in practice, guys, was that more things that were sent in communications between foreign countries involving the United States could be classified. On the 6th of January, for example, the NSC issued Intelligence Directive No. 11, which declared the intention to protect sources and methods of intelligence collection. That same day, Intelligence Directive 12 was released, which instructed all government departments to take up steps to prevent the unauthorized disclosure of any information concerning intelligence or intelligence activities. Why the sudden need for these intelligence directives? Could it have been because US codebreakers made a breakthrough and they wished to protect their secrets from the Soviets? Considering how permeable the US government was known to be and how leaky certain members of the administration were rumoured to be if they didn't get their own way, perhaps these intelligence directives were a way of Truman covering his administration so that they would be able to prevent Moscow from finding out about their espionage victory. In early March 1950, the Communications Intelligence Board was also established, further enshrining certain governmental communiques behind a paywall and restricting access to certain communication channels by several levels of the administration's staff. It should be borne in mind that a passing message between different communist figures had coincidentally occurred before, and again at right about the time that an increase in activity in the United States intelligence services had taken place. Now, I don't want to bombard you with a load of numbers and a load of names again, but if you can remember back a few episodes, we have seen how NSC 48-1 and NSC 48-2 were effectively developed over the space of a week in late December 1949. But what you might not remember is that only a few days before Dean Acheson put his policy towards China into writing on such a level, a message was sent by Mao Zedong back home to Beijing, wherein he stated on the 19th of December 1949 that he wished to do business with the Americans. This message, as it happened, was actually designed to lure Stalin in, since Mao suspected correctly enough that Stalin was reading his cables, and Mao believed it would pressure Stalin into seeing him and stop him from ignoring him any longer, as Stalin had been doing since his first meeting with Mao earlier in the month. 
What if Mao's cable had also been read by the Americans as well as the Soviets and that this had compelled Acheson to formulate NSC 48-1 and 2, the policy that he ended up trying to follow, in a bid to capitalise on what was perceived as a Chinese desire to work with Washington? Again, much like no direct evidence exists to suggest that Acheson read Mao's cable to Beijing and then rushed to take advantage, similarly we can't be sure that Stalin's message to Kim Il-sung to prepare for war with the South on the 30th of January 1950 compelled Washington to usher in a brand new approach to the world shortly thereafter. What we do know is that these two events look suspiciously similar, and that in both cases they occurred around the same time that the highest levels of American government did an awful lot of moving. It should also serve to draw attention to the fact that Americans weren't the only ones who could potentially crack the other's mail. Stalin was rightly suspected of having done it too, and considering what we also know about the Soviet spy network in the United States, these facts all combine to build a picture of increasing espionage and sneakiness on the part of each of the powers. Where the Second World War had contained the Enigma Code victory in Bletchley Park and the limited infiltration movements into occupied Europe, the sheer volume of intelligence and information activities by 1950 suggested that not only was a nuclear age dawning, but a shady world of spies and espionage as well. Never before had code-breaking and the act of securing or preventing the unauthorised disclosure of known facts been so important. As we'll see, what the United States actually knew, and what it wanted the world to know that it knew, were two very different things, and the American policy towards Korea in particular depended on these two realities remaining distinctly, but also discreetly, separate. In the midst of this newfound interest in gathering of sensitive information was the latest US stance on foreign policy developed. Beginning in early March 1950 and concluding once the final draft was handed to President Truman on the 11th of April, a groundbreaking new approach by the catchy name of NSC-68 came to life. For 25 years after the Korean War, NSC-68 remained classified sealed under lock and key and inaccessible to the historian or journalist interested in the ins and outs of the Korean War. How, such figures may have asked between 1953 and 1978, could the United States have been caught so off guard in Korea? Incredibly, this question missed the entire point of the war together. Even after 1978 and well into the 1980s, some historians examined the Asian theatre and the importance of Japan to the development of the containment policy, Yet they didn't seem to notice or mention NSC-68 at all. The time has come, history friends, to talk about this apparently innocuous report known as NSC-68, or, as I like to call it, how to guarantee that your enemies launched the war in Korea, which you know that they wanted to launch all along, but that you need to make look like a total surprise to gain the end result of massive rearmament and geopolitical security that you wanted. On second thought... (laughs) Perhaps NSC-68 is a better name for it after all. Anyway, let's begin. So according to NSC-68, the United States now faces the contingency that within the next four or five years, the Soviet Union will possess the military capability of delivering a surprise atomic attack of such weight that the United States must have substantially increased general air, ground and sea strength, atomic capabilities, and air and civilian defences to deter war and to provide reasonable assurance 
in the event of war, that it could survive the initial blow and go on to the eventual attainment of its objectives. In turn, this contingency requires the intensification of our efforts in the fields of intelligence and research and development. The United States, according to NSC 68's principles, was under serious threat from the Soviet Union, which had never been so diplomatically strong, so militarily secure, or so atomically capable before. Military strength, so said the authors of NSC 68, was the ultimate guarantee of our national security. Without military superiority over the USSR, in being and readily mobilizable, the policy of containment is no more than bluff. Bluffing from the position of weakness was, according to the report, a recipe for disaster. The only chance was to actively combat the strength of the USSR head-on and to fight if necessary to defend our way of life. The Soviet economic weakness in comparison to the United States was reduced in significance during this report, since according to NSC 68, the USSR was spending proportionally more of its budget on defence than Washington. What was worse, the armed forces at Moscow's disposal were far in excess of those needed to defend national territory. It was this excessive strength, claimed the report, coupled with an atomic capability that provides the Soviets with such considerable coercive power for use in times of peace in furtherance of its objectives and serves as a deterrent to the victims of its aggression from taking any action in opposition to its tactics which would risk war. The USSR, claimed the report, therefore had the power to bully and threaten any power which wasn't military or otherwise allied or tied to Moscow already, and its actions in wartime were much to be feared. Outlining the predictions for what would happen in the event of a war breaking out in 1950, NSC-68 claimed that the Soviets and its satellites were in a strong enough position to overrun Western Europe, launch air attacks against the British Isles, launch similar attacks against critical lines of communication in the Atlantic and Pacific, and attack selected targets with atomic weapons. This nightmare scenario, imagining in its course a Soviet occupation of all non-aligned land from Spain to Scandinavia and all along the Atlantic coast, would place the Soviets in an unparalleled position to dictate terms which, at the pain of nuclear war, the United States and its allies would have to accept. This grim picture was made all the more so by the comparative state of Western Europe and the defence which Washington could expect its NATO allies to mount. The likes of West Germany and Japan remained critical bastions of defence for the United States in Europe and Asia, respectively, yet none of this would matter if the Soviets launched their bid for supremacy. Final predictions that a Soviet drive into the Middle East and through Egypt, cutting off the Suez Canal, and we'll get to that, only added to the image of total and helpless European domination under a Soviet sun. In actual fact, thanks to figures released at the same time by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we can deduce that the authors of NSC 68 inflated the Soviet capabilities somewhat. But regardless, it was quickly evident that NSC 68 had been planted in fertile ground, and that it had drawn upon genuine fears in Washington. It wasn't just that the Soviets seemed to possess such an overwhelming body of force, but that the United States, with its comparatively better economic systems and better developed allies, could not significantly combat the Soviet strength, and since the end of the war had seen its influence collectively decline. The contagious communist disease had spread throughout the world, 
further strengthening both the resolve and image of Moscow and Stalin, and further imperiling the American position as state after state succumbed to Soviet pressures. The inability of the Chinese to escape this Soviet gravitational pull seemed also to weigh in on the conclusions of the report. The integrity and vitality of our system is in greater jeopardy than ever before in our history, the report continued, adding that the Kremlin's possession of atomic weapons puts new power behind its designs and increases the jeopardy to our system. Indeed, it is worth taking a moment to consider the historical significance of what actually had happened in the autumn of 1949. For the first time in human history, two nuclear states now existed on the same planet. This had never happened before, and we can forgive Washington for speaking in more excitable tones than we may feel is necessary for the time. We must bear in mind, there was no certainty in Washington that Stalin would not invade in Western Europe, that he would not make use of the atomic bomb now that he had it. There was a strong possibility that he would not, since it was always believed at some level during the Cold War that camerheads would eventually prevail, even at the height of tension. But the Truman administration could not be sure in the months immediately after, having created this potent weapon, exactly how or if the Soviet Union would use it. Was it better to rely on the always unreliable Stalin, or to prepare for the worst while hoping for the best? NSC 68 put it most aptly when it put the now famous phrase forward, saying, No people in history have preserved their freedom who thought that by not being strong enough to protect themselves they might prove inoffensive to their enemies. It was precisely because America was perceived to be strong that Stalin had not finished what Lenin had started, although of course the reality in Moscow was more complicated than that. As Washington understood it, and as NSC 68 made clear, the United States was faced with the choice either of responding to the Soviet challenge, containing their resurgence, and rearming at a rapid rate to balance against Moscow's power, or permitting this dominant USSR to achieve continued dominance, enabling in the process communism and Soviet influence to explode in the world, and for the United States to be relegated to third-rate position in world affairs, all the while subject to the limited mercies of the Soviet system. The choice was a stark one for President Truman to take, and while he had always seen eye to eye with Dean Acheson on the policy line that had been taken, and agreed in principle with this new line, it was still an extremely weighted choice. It involved choosing between the relinquishing of world power status or the perpetuation of an intense but not necessarily hot struggle with the Soviets, based on several unproven assumptions about Stalin's ambitions in the world. Truman would at least take solace from the notes made on the kinds of wars which Washington was expected to actually fight. NSC 68 noted that, The United States cannot therefore engage in war except as a reaction to aggression of so clear and compelling a nature as to bring the overwhelming majority of our people to accept the use of military force. NSC 68 then was not a declaration of war. It was a declaration that in order to have peace and to secure it across the world, the United States must prepare for a war with the Soviet Union and act as though the USSR was the enemy of the American people. The whole success of the proposed program, the report continued, hangs ultimately on recognition by the government, the American people, and all free peoples that the Cold War is in fact a real war in which the survival of the free world is at stake. Interestingly though, 
and as if sensing that announcing Moscow as the enemy of Washington would go down like a lead balloon to an American public more concerned with other domestic issues, NSC 68 recognised that, of course, that any announcement of the recommended course of action would be exploited by the Soviet Union in its peace campaign and would have adverse psychological effects in certain parts of the free world. It was not explained exactly how a rearmament program, a public support campaign and total secrecy of what was actually going on were to be achieved, but what was brought up was how great the cost was expected to be. Although Truman would have the final say on any expenditure that was granted, NSC 68 noted that between 40 and 50 billion dollars would be needed to generate the kind of military buildup required to meet the Soviet threat. So when President Truman received the 60-page report known as NSC 68 on his desk in the evening of the 11th of April 1950, it represented a changing in policy more abrupt than perhaps any other time since the United States first entered the Second World War on an official capacity. In contrast to that event, though, America was not to engage the Soviets in a direct war, nor was she to launch one preemptively. Since the United States cannot engage in war except as a reaction to aggression, NSC 68 declared, the inference was that Washington must only respond when war actually came. Yet the question of exactly how unprepared she had to be for a war was not addressed. Responding did not necessarily mean responding to a surprise. Two major tinderboxes could be cited as NSC 68 lay upon Truman's desk. Already the president was keenly aware that in China, Mao Zedong's major goal was the invasion of Taiwan. Yet, whereas once America had absconded itself from responsibilities towards that island, increasingly the region, and the Republic of China regime in general, was growing in importance. This, of course, was because Washington was forced to go with option B after its plan to co-opt the People's Republic of China had failed. Yet, Washington was also flip-flopping on the issue of Japan, which, although at peace, had yet to see a conclusive and definitive peace treaty be properly drawn up between the post-war Japanese and American governments. This was largely because, as far as Japan was concerned, Washington continued to change its mind on how to use the place to its advantage. Whereas before it had seemed like such a simple case, the Sino-Soviet alliance on the Soviet acquisition of nuclear weapons threw everything once assumed out the window in Asia. If the dominoes that Mao were soon to push over, with Stalin's help, were to fall soon in Asia, did it not make sense, in line with the containment strategy, to maintain some tangible link to the region? Any potential strongholds, be they Japanese or Taiwanese or South Korean, suddenly became critically important in this uncertain world, and it was into this line of thinking that South Korea's importance seriously loomed. If we accept my hypothesis that the Korean War was a conflict engineered by Stalin on the one hand and, putting this in air quotes, allowed by the Truman administration on the other hand, then we can also accept another fact. The Korean Peninsula was the ideal place for Stalin and for Washington's aims to be played out because the region was guaranteed to draw in as many powers as possible. Korea was not Taiwan in that it was not a security concern to merely Mao and, secondly, the United States. Korea was a security concern to China because it bordered Manchuria, 
and it was a security concern to the USSR because the Americans knew full well that Stalin had invested much in his communist protege, Kim Il-sung. While on the surface, Korea can seem like a random theatre for everyone to try and get what they wanted, Korea was a place where everyone's interests collided. This collision of interests could not happen in any other place on Earth. There was nowhere else in the world that Chinese, Soviet and American interests could be said to converge to such an extent. Thus, the image of the Soviet Union preparing the North Koreans for war did not surprise Washington, and they certainly were aware of it. But this does not necessarily mean that Washington knew why Stalin wished to see Kim Il-sung launch his invasion. A communist Korean satellite along the Chinese border would certainly have been nice. It would have been nice if the communists could have taken the entire Korean peninsula and put them under the communist red flag. But what Stalin seems to have wanted, much like Washington, was to see the conflict in Korea degenerate into a slugging match that would require, in America's ideal scenario, justification for a large-scale increase in spending, or, in the Soviet ideal scenario, grounds for Mao Zedong to intervene, and thus to alienate himself from the West. In the next episode, we'll switch the narrative to the Sino-Soviet arrangement, and I should warn you that it'll be something of a juggling exercise for the next few episodes, as we count down to war in both theatres of the world. For the next few minutes, though, before we get out of here, I think it'd be worth reiterating precisely what situation Washington was attempting to create in South Korea. So hopefully you're with me up to this point, and you'll be with me for a few more minutes. The chronic underspending in South Korea, the limp military support and the troubled nature of Syngman Rhee's so-called republic, all painted a grim picture of an American-aligned satellite just trying to defend itself in a sea of suspicious Asian powers. Unfortunately for Syngman Rhee, South Korea was to be, in the words of one historian, the tethered goat employed as bait in a much larger game with global ramifications. While the United States was undertaking the implementation of NSC-68 and preparing its allies by strengthening NATO, reinforcing its military bases in West Germany, and propping up its Japanese ally in particular, South Korea was openly left out. It was a known fact that North Korea and the Soviet Union were colluding to effect a huge arms and divisional build-up just above the South Korean border. And it was largely assumed that the Chinese, since the railroads for these supplies came through Manchuria, were in on the operation too. As we know from the last episode, of course, by January, through the Sino-Soviet Treaty, Mao and Stalin had arranged to share this railway, even as Mao wished for the Soviets to abandon it and to stay in their Manchurian ports. Stalin wanted to supply the looming conflict in Korea, but he did not want to be dragged into it personally. The point which will become obvious in later episodes is that Washington treated Syngman Rhee's government in such a way as to make it more vulnerable to invasion. The public rationale for not supplying South Korea with anti-tank, anti-aircraft and coastal patrol boats were so that he would not attack the North. Syngman Rhee had, after all, announced his intention to attack North Korea in the past, and to this day there is a school of thought which says that he did so but regardless of the truth in that theory, and we'll tackle it in time, the undeniable fact in spring 1950 was that Washington did not, under any circumstances, want Rhee to attack first. 
You see, for their strategy to work, for their baiting strategy to be effective, and for all subsequent justifications for defence spending and closer integration in the West and with the rest of its allies, Washington needed the Republic of Korea to be attacked and mauled significantly enough to warrant Western intervention. This intervention would come through the well-meaning auspices of the UN Security Council, which, to the immense convenience of the Americans, the Soviet Union was not sitting at. Rallying the Western forces for a large-scale campaign to reclaim Korea would do wonders for the defence budget. The appearance of communist aggression on such a large and brazen stage as this could only serve to put steel into those containment senators and ensure that they approved the massive upturn in spending which was believed to be necessary. Despite the rapidly escalating military activities in North Korea, and despite the fact that an earlier NSC report from 1948 had recommended a whole-scale increase in the defensive capabilities of South Korea, NSC 68 had clearly triumphed overall. To feed this report, and to provide America with the strength that it needed, all it had to do was wait for the North and USSR to blunder into the very war which Stalin was relying upon to drive Mao Zedong away from the West. Incredibly enough, in the case of the Korean War, the two Cold War rivals wanted the same things, and upon these things hinged the intervention of the People's Republic of China, and the siege mentality of Mao Zedong. Little wonder that Richard C. Thornton, in his book examining the diplomatic origins of the Korean War, labelled the Chinese leader as the odd man out. But Mao Zedong was not the only odd man out. Syngman Rhee, too, was left conspicuously absent from Washington's defensive considerations as spring 1950 progressed. Thornton actually notes that while the evident plot to invade was becoming blatantly obvious in Washington, the Truman administration only approved $108 of direct aid to Seoul. $108 in the build-up to the Korean War. That's all a sweating Syngman Rhee got, and this was in the form of signal wire. Syngman Rhee, evidently, had not got the signal. The United States wasn't hanging him out to dry, so much as it was using him as its tar baby and then waiting to see what would stick to him. In the next episode, we'll resume our narrative of the Sino-Soviet perspective and look at how Stalin, Mao and Kim Il-sung all manoeuvred around one another in spring 1950, with each man harbouring secrets and refraining from telling the other the full story. Until then though, this has been a long-ish episode, so I will take my leave. I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of our build-up towards the Korean War and that you're not too scandalised or overwhelmed by my perspective, guys. Make sure to let me know what you thought about this. I've really been enjoying your feedback so far. And if you weren't aware of it being released, make sure to check out 1956, the eventful year as well. Make sure to tune in next week, of course, as well. But for now, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to the Korean War episode 13. Seeing you all soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Resistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.